Well, we are still in what is called the Eastertide season, this season in which we are continuing to remember the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And in the next two weeks, this week and next week, we're going to be in the same chapter in the book of Acts. We're going to be in the ninth chapter of Acts today and next week. And a lot of people have said of today's scripture, it's a story about Paul before Paul was Paul. I'll come back to that and let you know what I mean by that in a little bit later. But really, what we're going to be hearing and remembering and reflecting on today, I think we could argue the case that it is one of the singular events that changed the course of world history. World history. I wonder if what we're going to hear about today did not happen, how long it would take the word of God, the good news, to come all the way to Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, here at 819 East Silver Spring. We know that other than Jesus Christ himself, there is arguably no single person who has done more to spread the good news of our Lord and Savior than the Apostle Paul and we know actually that Paul's letters that he wrote were, were penned and were, were written even before the Gospels were written, certainly before the book of Acts was written. This is a pivotal player in God's plan for salvation. Now, let me set the stage. So, yes, Jesus has been resurrected, and, and we know the number of people that were a part of this group. They called themselves the way, we would call them the church. There was 120 of them that were a tight-knit unit of people. And to them, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit is going to come and then he ascends into heaven. And I told the story that I, I at first service I told the story about when I was in Jerusalem and we went to the site where the ascension happened. And they always kind of preface it, it happened right here or a place very much like right here. Who really knows? And, and the human condition, we were all there and they said, and this is where Jesus rose. And every single one of us, what do you think we did? We looked up to see, see if we could still see, a, you know, just catch a glimpse, just catch a glimpse. Well, we know that Judas Iscariot had betrayed Jesus Christ and he's no longer on the scene at all. And the disciples are saying to themselves, you know, Jesus was pretty intentional about everything he did, and, and he had 12 of us, so maybe we should have 12 of us. Maybe we should elect one from amongst ourselves who is going to be one of the inner circle, the ones who is going to be an apostle. And so they identify two guys that have been there from the very beginning. They've walked with Jesus for three years, Matthias and a man named Justice. And so what they decide to do is they basically play a game of chance, right? They cast lots, um, like rock, paper, scissors, or pick the longest straw. And, and we say, well, why would they leave that up to luck? I think they left it up to the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Matthias uh, replaces Judas, and justice is lost to us in history, the day of Pentecost does come, and they're transformed, and people are starting to hear the good news in their, own, in their own language, and the authorities that are in place, they're upset because this is really starting to get some legs to it. And so there's this young man named Stephen, and Stephen is a gifted speaker, a gifted preacher, and the powers that be have to eliminate him. And so he was stoned to death. And the scripture lets us know that the people who were doing this execution laid their garments at the feet of a man named Saul. 
which lets us know that Saul, who is going to become Paul, is the one who oversees this death. And so some people get kind of tripped up, Saul or Paul, which, which is it? And we know that it was commonplace in that culture for the Jewish people to have an Aramaic or a Hebrew name, but then also as occupied people to have a Roman name. And so his Jewish Aramaic name was Saul, but his Roman name, a sign of the oppression, was Paulus. So he's known either way, Saul or Paul. And after Acts chapter 13, verse 9, uh, there is no more mention of Saul. It is just Paul. Now, we know that Paul was an intense human being. Uh, Some would kind of tongue-in-cheek say not very accommodating. His zeal for the Old Testament, his zeal and his passion for the ways of God's people from the Pentateuch and, and moving forward, you know, is so consuming, so obsolete that he feels, he feels compelled to apply pressure by any means necessary to get rid of this mess, to clean it up. As I read this week, proclaiming as God's Messiah a man condemned by the temple leadership for misleading the people was, to Paul, a dangerous and serious offense. And so Paul is going to do something about it. He's going to travel 135 miles north to a town called Damascus. It was a very important city in the the Syrian uh, area, and it was a leading commercial center of the Roman Empire. And so this is where Paul is going to go. He's going to go and try and find these Christians, these people who are part of the way, and get rid of them. Get rid of them. So I'm reading from the NRSV, which is the same version that's in your pewbacks. And I'm going to read these just kind of in segments and stop and, and share some thoughts as we make our while. And so just before this, we hear the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. But chapter 9 begins like this. Meanwhile, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, that is, the early church, if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. I'm going to pause right there. You'll be told what to do. Paul went up there to try and stamp out Christianity once and for all. He was going there to persecute those who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. In his mind, this rumor that was starting to spread, this lie that was starting to spread, but something happened. He gets stopped on the way, stopped on the way, and the voice from heaven comes, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? But he doesn't say, my men and women, in Jerusalem and Damascus. No, Jesus says, why do you persecute me? Saul was persecuting Jesus because when you persecute members of the body of Christ, you're persecuting Christ himself. Remember when Jesus taught, I'm telling you the truth, just as you've done it to the least of these, you have done it 
to me. We are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. And if we are being persecuted because of our faith, then it is Christ who is being persecuted. William Barclay, a great old Scottish theologian, says that this is the most famous conversion story in the history of humanity. And we must try and enter it through the mind of Saul or Paul. It wasn't just a sudden conversion. Barclay says it was a sudden surrender. Saul, knocked to the ground, was having to surrender. And Barclay writes, There is all of Christianity in what the risen Christ said to Paul. Go into the city, and there you'll be told what to do. Now, up to this moment, Paul was the guy calling shots. Isn't it a lot more fun to call your own shots and the shots of others than to have somebody else call your shots for you? Paul was accustomed to doing what he wanted, going where he wanted, dictating what he thought was best dictated. But from this moment on, from this encounter, he would be told what to do. And so Barclay reflects that a Christian is a man or a woman who has ceased to do only what their selfish intents are and begin to do what Jesus Christ has called us to do. And certainly Paul is going to live into that reality for the rest of his life. But we continue with this text. I'm in verse 7 now. Uh, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And I want to pause right there. How big was this traveling party? We kind of think of it maybe just being Paul and a couple of people who were on their way from Jerusalem to Damascus, a 135-mile journey, but there had to be a large enough group of people traveling with them that they were going to be able to take everyone that they find that believes in Christ, have them bound and taken them to Jerusalem. This had to be kind of a, a, an army of sorts. It had to be a, a large group of people. And what do they encounter? This voice, but they see no one, this bright, blinding light. The original text that is written, if if you translate it, it says, brighter than the noontime light, like a flash of light. What's the whitest, white hot light you've ever seen? A couple years ago, well, before the pandemic, I guess that's how we measure time now, pre or post pandemic. Before the pandemic, Janet and I were coming into church here for a Saturday night uh, chapel service, and we were on Brown Deer Road, and this truck swerved over two lanes and went off and plowed into a transformer. And the light was so bright. It was, fl- it was stunning. We thought the man was dead. He got out of the car. But I imagine that kind of light. But now this voice and the, the, the troop that is walking with him, the people who are going with him, have, have no idea what's going on. And, and we don't hear the words that they say. I wonder if they, they had the courage or the insight to say anything at all. I don't know about you, but travel companions make or break a trip. You ever been on a trip with some folks you kind of wish you could leave them behind? Or, or you've been on a trip with some folks that have made your experience even greater than what you thought it could be? These traveling companions are going to make the trip to Damascus for Paul. 
God chose these people to be there present, and they don't know exactly what's going on, but they help him. So into Damascus went a man who was changed and how he was changed. He went, he went, he intended to enter Damascus like an avenging fury, but he was led by hand, blind, by people whose name we will never, ever know. And one of the things that, that I've been walking with this week is I wonder how many of us, maybe without our even knowing it, are being used by our God to guide someone who is blind to the reality of love and grace into a kind of relationship that's going to change them. Maybe not with a bright flashing light, but over time. God can use who God chooses to accomplish God's purposes, maybe even you and me. The story continues. For three nights and three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he answered, Here I am, Lord. Just, you know, parenthetically, if you ever hear the voice of God call you by name, the right answer is, Here I am, Lord. Here I am. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Can we blame Ananias at all? about having some trepidation, about being dubious about this. You know, the Bible said it very clearly. You know, the, the language might have been more colorful. You know, are, are you kidding me? What? We all know this guy's coming to, to take us that we might be killed, and you want me to do what now? And yet, God has a way, and Ananias does do but Ananias, much like you and I, probably had enough experience in life that, that maybe he didn't trust that somebody really had changed, that somebody really was forever going to walk a different path. Maybe like so many of us, we have made a judgment about somebody years ago, and in our mind, we'll never see them as a changed, complete human being, and that's, that's our problem, not the other person's problem. And so Ananias had to make a shift. He needed to shift his prejudices and his priorities as well. We understand why he was nervous, but God told him to do it, and he was going to do it. Ananias was led by God to bridge a relationship between what was known as Saul and what ultimately Paul was going to become. Beyond a doubt, Ananias is one of the most forgotten heroes of the Christian faith. When was the last time you had a good old conversation about a man named Ananias? My guess is not very often. But the story is going to con conclude. 
So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, some people talk about Paul's ability to see again as simply a metaphor for his ability to see things differently. And of course, we know that he will see things differently from then on. But it is amazing. Paul was on his way to Damascus with one job in mind, search and destroy. He still finds himself in Damascus, but his, what he's doing there now is 180. It's a complete turnaround. Instead of persecuting, he is proclaiming. Instead of hurting, he is helping. He is doing everything he can as a changed human being. And so we have to ask, how does Paul get it so quickly? I mean, the disciples, they struggled for years. How is Paul able in an instant to start preaching uh, with, with the kind of authority that he is? Some people say it was right in the text, the Holy Spirit was on him. Others say it was Ananias and others who, while he was sitting there, did so much to help teach him everything. Other people say, if you were appointed to hunt out a group of people in order to get rid of them, you need to know everything there is to know about them so that you can find a way to infiltrate, so that you can find a way to get in. Maybe that was it, or maybe... Maybe he saw the change in the disciples, or maybe, and this would make John Wesley, the founder of our, of our movement, so happy. Maybe, just maybe, it was the prevenient grace of God that went before him. Maybe God started poking uh, Saul on the heart before Saul ever let that heart open up. Maybe while he was overseeing the stoning, the execution, the death of Stephen, there was something about Stephen's resolve, something about Stephen's strength, something about the way he was willing to go all the way to the end that really started to work on Saul. Maybe it was the change he saw in people who were so ordinary, now so bright and vibrant and extraordinary. Maybe it was his research to learn as much as he could about this people that were known as the way that he started to have it kind of seep its way into his heart, unlock the doors of his heart. All we know is that Saul was a zealot, and he was zealously persecuting, but now he is zealously proclaiming the grace and the love of our God. Was it all because of simply a blinding light? Not everyone has a a blinding light road to Damascus kind of experience. As a pastor, I get to hear people's faith stories, and as I look out at the people who are here at this service and, and in the choir and, and those that were at the, the first service, you know, I've heard a lot of your faith stories, and not one of them included a bright, shining light knocking you to the ground. Not a single one, but, but your faith stories have just as much power There's just as much transformation. But I'm likely to hear people say, even though I've never had a Damascus Road experience, I still believe God has been at work in my life. 
And so reminded of the sermon I preached last Saturday where Jesus said, blessed are those who believe even though they have not seen. This is no doubt a conversion story, but Paul is not the star of the story. God is the star of the story. The people God used, Ananias and his traveling companions, are the star of the story. The main character in every conversion story is God. It is God who changes lives. And yet, like Ananias, it's hard for us to really validate that. Have you ever in your lifetime known someone who, you know, had their own way about how they were living and, and how they thought? And maybe you said goodbye to them at work on Friday and, and they come back to work on Monday and they're a completely different person? Sometimes we might even think, oh, they're obnoxious. I wish they would stop preaching to me. I've believed for years. Sometimes we doubt the experience of others like that. But with God, all things are possible, and God is the agent of change. God can even change your life. And so I wonder, I invite you to think about what is the most dramatic change in someone that you have ever witnessed? Or better yet, what is the most dramatic change that has happened in your life? Almost every person here of a certain age, 20, 30 years ago, was absolutely certain about something that now, so long after, you believe just the opposite because you continue to grow, you continue to evolve as a human being because the sciences are even better. We can be changed. We can have 180 degrees difference in our own lives. One of the songs that we used to sing at my, my previous church, Stillwaters, we didn't have, we never did have a, a chancel, we didn't have a chancel, we were uh, contemporary through and through, and one of the, the songs that was out um, early on when I was there was I Can Only Imagine by Mercy Me, how many of you know that song, I Can Only Imagine by Mercy Me, and they made a movie uh, about how that song came to be, and it's really a movie about Bart Millard, who was the lead singer for Mercy Me, still is. And he grew up in a terrible situation. He grew up in a house where his father, on whatever substances he happened to be on at that time, would beat him. Not just once in a while, like three, four, five times a week. There was a point in his life where he actually thought his father was going to end up killing him. What a terrible way for any human being to have to be raised, to have utter fear of the monster that lives in your house and you have no idea what's going to happen. Well, his father got sick and something happened when his father got sick. His father had an experience where suddenly he wasn't the violent addict Suddenly, he was one who was seeking after God and, and found God. And, you know, Bart Miller had a hard time expect, accepting this at, at first. You know, oh, he's just doing this because he's trying to, you know, cover all the bases because he has cancer now. But no, the change was real. The transformation was real. And that song, I Can Only Imagine, the breakthrough song that sold, you know, more than a million copies for a Christian artist, that's, that's incredible. It was written, it was, it was inspired by his experience with his dad. 
And he can only imagine what it's going to be like. Well, in that movie, they, they had actors that, that played him, but I don't know if it was in the extras or whatever, but they had an interview with Bart Millard right there. And he said something, and I remembered it all these years afterwards, and so I went back to look it up online this week. But this is what uh, Bart Miller said about the transformation of his father. He said, if the gospel can change that guy, the gospel can change anybody. If the gospel can change that guy, and, you know, there would be some expletives here that you could probably throw in there, God can change anybody. The real truth is there is nobody that God can't change. And there are many people who go through life miserable because they're fighting that. They are fighting what is eternally true. Transformation and change is never easy. Just never easy. Certain relationships are going to have to be left behind forever, but there are new relationships that are waiting to happen. Some have called Paul's conversion a violent reorientation of his life. That's kind of a fun phrase, too, a violent reorientation of his life. But what is notable about Paul's is that it was extraordinary, whereas most of ours are just ordinary, found in the routines of life. Sometimes conversions can be dramatic, sometimes not. As a pastor, it is so fun to hear your faith journey stories. And I will tell you, over more than 30 years in full-time ministry, I have heard hundreds of faith journey stories, and almost never are any two the same. It's because each and every one of us has a unique soul print And what's going to work to break through into one person's heart is not going to work to break through into another's. But the thing is, God is always seeking to break through. As I read from William Mule this week, the roads to Christian faith are as varied as the people who profess it. The roads to Christian faith are as varied as the people who profess it. Paul was a changed man. He was still a Jew. He was always going to be a Jewish man, but now he was a Jewish man that was a part of this sect that that believed that what the prophets had spoken about had indeed come true, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, and believed in the message of death and resurrection, victory over death. And so, brothers and sisters, let us pray that God will open our eyes, just as God opened Paul's to the new reality, a new reality that is created by the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen.